This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I believe we mentioned on last week's program that we were going to be taking a look at The Post, the new Steven Spielberg picture featuring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, and we have done so. I'm somewhat saddened to note that in conjunction with that, I'm not able to report that Daniel Ellsberg has gotten back to us and is going to talk to us on this program about the Pentagon Papers and, more importantly, his new book, The Doomsday Machine. But he's a busy man, and I know he's going to be appearing on KALW in the Bay Area this week, and we'll try again. There's an awful lot one could say about the Pentagon Papers. We've talked about this episode in American history many times in past programs, but never at great length. I think what we're going to do today is use the movie to go back to 1971 and kick some issues around that are still reverberating in the country to this day. Let us commence this by going to Alternet for the review there of The Post by Jefferson Morley. We're most respectful of Mr. Morley's work on this program, having interviewed him last month about his new book on James Angleton titled The Ghost. If you have not yet listened to that, dear listener, please make a point to do so after listening to us today. We'd also refer you not just to our interview about the ghost, but to a previous discussion we had with Jefferson Morley about the character of Winston Scott, his book Our Man in Mexico. And by the way, although we're very happy about how those interviews came out, we'd like to suggest, as we always do, that you consider getting a hold of the actual book yourself, dear listener, and reading them. And reading it. In this case, reading them. But let us jump to his review, at least excerpting from it, from Alternet. It was titled, How the 60s Counterculture Changed the Washington Post. The subheadline is, Spielberg's latest film, Tinkers with the Truth, in service of celebrating journalism. He starts by noting, When I heard Ben Bradley himself tell the story at the heart of Steven Spielberg's new movie, The Post, he shook his head in disgust. In retirement, the former editor would occasionally hold forth in the Washington Post newsroom where I worked retailing his favorite anecdotes, of which the Pentagon Papers was clearly not a favorite. Oh, the Times was kicking our ass on a daily basis, Bradley moaned. In June 1971, the New York Times had published a Defense Department study that showed U.S. presidents and policymakers had been lying for decades about U.S. prospects for victory in the Vietnam War. The Post newsroom, for all of its vaunted connections, could not put its hand on a copy while the Times printed scoop after scoop. Snorted Bradley, we were sucking their tailpipe. And, while the Post was regurgitating its rival's reporting, the very nervous publisher, Catherine Graham, was scheduled to take the company public. Bradley growled, Kay was in a hell of a jam. And there we were, rewriting the goddamn Brand X, which was the Post's newsroom lingo for the Times. He found little redeeming in the memory. The fact that the Post finally obtained a copy of the Pentagon Papers and wrote its own story was, in Bradley's telling, a booby prize he didn't much care for. Decades later, he was still embarrassed about being scooped on the biggest story of the year. 
Out of such newsroom banter, director Steven Spielberg has spun The Post, a heartwarming journalistic yarn featuring Meryl Streep's pitch-perfect portrayal of Graham as an insecure feminist heroine, and Tom Hanks's nuanced depiction of a brash Bradley whose legend as a crusading Watergate editor, burnished in the movie All the President's Men, has obscured just how conventional he usually was. Spoiler alert, though not always. Journalistically, the New York Times owned the Pentagon Papers story. Daniel Ellsberg, the disillusioned defense intellectual who stole the secret study, gave it to Times reporter Neil Sheehan, who would merely go on to write one of the best books ever about the Vietnam War, A Bright Shining Lie. We'd like to note that a year ago, after finally reading Neil Sheehan's A Bright Shining Lie, we were quite knocked out by it and did at least one entire segment based on quotes from that book, which is a classic. As long as we're going to do some plugging today, and I guess we are, we would suggest to listen that you may want to put that in your home library, along with Francis Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake. The latter is, is so remarkable for the insights held in it upon the Vietnam War, considering that it was written before the war came to a conclusion. Back to Jeff Morley's review. Arthur Sulzberger, the owlish Times reporter, took the biggest risk in publishing a string of stories in the face of White House rage. President Richard Nixon sought a Supreme Court injunction to stop the Times from printing more stories, an unprecedented challenge to the First Amendment. Notes Morley, cinematically, The Post stole the glory by finishing a distant second with a more interesting cast of characters. Graham, born and bred to expectations of female deference, took over The Post in 1963 after the suicide of mentally ill husband Phil. Self-effacing in every way, she grew into the role of publisher, just as Bradley, a clever Ivy League insider with CIA friends, who was her first major hire, grew into the role of executive editor. The dynamic that drives the film is countercultural. How the anti-war movement pushed and pulled these two strong and conventional personalities into doing the right thing. The intense Ellsberg, played with steady aplomb by Matthew Rice, best known as Philip Jennings on The Americans, is the moral motor of the movie. The first 20 minutes are devoted to how Ellsberg did what he set out to do, force others with less conviction to act. A former Marine turned national security analyst, Ellsberg goes into combat in 1965 to see how the Vietnam War is going and is nearly killed. He is appalled to watch his boss, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, a social friend of Catherine Graham's, then lie to the TV cameras about progress in Vietnam. So, Ellsberg steals the secret Pentagon study with the goal of stopping the war. With the help of a couple of hippie friends, he copies 7,000 pages of it. When the Times publishes the story, the Post has to play catch-up. Skipping ahead a bit, the paper was compromised by its proximity to power. Catherine Graham was a social friend of Robert McNamara's, just as Bradley had been a pal of JFK's. Described by Jeff Morley as one of the presidents who had mouthed the platitudes of progress in Vietnam, even as he privately resisted Pentagon demands for escalation. Skipping further, Spielberg's direction captures the distaste that Graham and Bradley, pure products of the Washington establishment, had for the unruly anti-war demonstrators on in their peasant dresses and bell-bottoms, even as they come to realize that Ellsberg and company were right, that the time had come for people to act, to denounce, disrupt, or otherwise challenge a wasteful and criminal war. Like it or not, 
they had to side with the scruffy anti-war demonstrators. They had to choose truth over power. To their everlasting credit, they did. In a decisive moment, exquisitely played by Meryl Streep, Catherine Graham realizes that her son be killed in a useless war. Her resolve turns steely. She overrules her male advisors, sides with Ben Bradley, and decides to publish the Post story. It makes for such a stirring finale on the big screen, it hardly matters that I later heard Bradley dismiss the same story as, quote, nothing special, unquote. Jumping further ahead, how does the Washington Post of today compare with Spielberg's Post? The editorial pages combine stout domestic liberalism with a predictably pro-war voice. The overall result is uninspiring. An infusion of Ellsbergian conviction about our ill-conceived extra-constitutional expeditions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and Niger would expand the Post's audience and serve the country. Wow. Jefferson Morley notes that in the newsroom, publisher Jeff Bezos follows the Graham family tradition. He notes, like the Grahams, Bezos is also politically ambidextrous in the service of running a profitable business. He notes the post-executive editor, Marty Barron, the laconic hero of the Oscar-winning Spotlight, is less charismatic than Ben Bradley, but perhaps more independent. The left may distrust Jeff Bezos's immense wealth and lament the Post's neoconservative tendencies, but it is hard to dispute that Barron has spent his Amazonian cash flow well in the service of exposing President Trump's lies, crimes, and misdemeanors. And finally... Moving ahead here, he concludes by saying the drama of the post-movie is a challenge for today. The drama of the post-movie is a challenge for today's post and every other national news organization to resist management pressure inside the newsroom while standing up to unaccountable power outside. That's not just Hollywood myth-making, that's the nature of the news business. In summary, Mr. Morley liked the film, although he quibbles a bit in some of the portrayals, and uh, I would concur. A friend called me for a review after I went to go see it because I'd mentioned to her that I feared that it would get a lot of things wrong. And I had to conclude that I didn't see any major errors based on my knowledge of the events of 1971. But uh, I know that uh, our good friend uh, James DiEugenio uh, would not necessarily concur with that. Jim has been on this show many times and he wrote... Uh, some scathing things about both the movie and previously about Ben Bradley himself. I think I'd do well to excerpt a bit from what Jim had to say. Says our firebrand friend, Mr. Diogenio, in the review titled Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg Mythologize the Washington Post, he starts, A few weeks ago, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick delivered a hugely disappointing 10-part documentary entitled The Vietnam Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg will now do the same for the famous Pentagon Papers case. Their film, entitled The Post, is not focused on Daniel Ellsberg, and it does not use his book Secrets as source material. Their film actually makes Ben Bradley and Kate Graham the protagonists of the whole struggle to release the multi-volume Defense Department study about how America got into and stayed involved in the Vietnam War. Says Jim, it will therefore make Bradley and Graham into some kind of hero and heroine of that hugely conflicting episode. To anyone who understands who Graham and Bradley were, and the true story of what Ellsberg did, nothing could be further from the facts. To cite just one example, in Ellsberg's 457-page book, Secrets, which chronicles the entire affair in detail, there is exactly one 
glancing reference to Ben Bradley. There are none to Graham. And to, to check his work, I did pull secrets off the bookshelf and take a look, and he's correct. Daniel Ellsberg does not seem to give either Ben Bradley or Catherine Graham a whole lot of credit for what happened. Says Jim DiEugenio, that is because when one understands what Ellsberg and his cohorts were up to, the Washington Post was, if not inconsequential to the affair, extraneous to Ellsberg's strategy. Once Daniel Ellsberg made his decision to go public with the Robert McNamara commissioned top-secret history, it was just a matter of how many newspapers would pick up the story after the New York Times initially published it. Ellsberg and his friends had made many copies of the secret history since he anticipated that there might be legal action against the Times to stop publishing. He and his friends had arranged for many newspaper outlets to get them once the Times was enjoined by the Nixon White House with a temporary restraining order to halt publication, which the Times was after just three days of stories. Says Diogenia, by the time the Supreme Court decided to strike down the TRO, temporary restraining order, and allow publication, almost 20 newspapers throughout the country had printed sections of the Pentagon Papers. The White House had only named four of them in their legal action. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. But further... Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska had read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record on the floor of the Senate, and he then handed out copies to reporters who were there at the time. He then arranged for no other senator to be there so he could move to have the entire set committed to the record without objection. This was on the day the Supreme Court decision was delivered. What Gravel did, committing the documents into the Senate record, made the decision pretty much irrelevant. Says Diogenio, there are heroes in the story, Ellsberg, Mike Gravel, and Ellsberg's friend Anthony Russo, who helped him copy the documents and who, like Ellsberg, risked going to jail for that act. But there was also Judge Gerhard Gassell, who during the two weeks of rapid, almost dizzying court hearings, ruled twice for disclosure. The author then refers us to his previous work on Ben Bradley, which I will also excerpt from. Writing after Mr. Bradley passed away a few years ago, Jim said that outside of the mainstream media, Bradley's passing did not meet with romantic nostalgia for a lost Eden, longing for the good old days of an ink-stained press, or for American journalism in general. And there are two reasons for this. First, the model of the media that Bradley represented, the top-down decision-making on what would run in the paper, in what form, and where, has been exposed as very flawed. Second, it can be shown with plentiful evidence that Bradley and the Post did some, at best incomplete, at worst spurious, reporting on at least three mammoth issues from its heyday. The JFK assassination, the global policies of JFK's presidency, and even Richard Nixon's Watergate scandal. Ben Bradley was born into an influential and wealthy Boston family. Future CIA director Richard Helms was a childhood friend. He attended exclusive prep schools and was the 51st member of his family to attend Harvard. During World War II, he entered Naval ROTC and after graduation in 1942, attained his Naval Commission. He then joined the Office of Naval Intelligence. After getting out of the Navy, he helped fund a publication called the New Hampshire Sunday Times. In 1948, he looked for a job as a newspaper reporter. According to him, accidentally chose the post since he was driving down since he was riding a train down the east coast and it was raining in baltimore so he didn't get out till he got to washington catherine graham's biographer says there was more to it than that 
evidently a confluence of family banking connections related to Bradley, uh, were familiar with the Post's owner, fellow investment banker Eugene Meyer, Catherine Graham's dad. That seemed to have helped get him a job. Bradley worked the police beat for a few years and then evidently got bored and frustrated and made that frustration known to publisher Phil Graham, husband of Catherine. Evidently, Phil Graham granted uh, Ben Bradley leave of absence and he went to work in Paris as a press attaché at the embassy. According to Jim Diogenio, in the 1950s, Phil Graham spent a lot of time drinking and talking at private clubs with the likes of the CIA's Alan Dulles, Frank Wisner, Desmond Fitzgerald, and Richard Helms. He notes that his view of international issues was rather similar to their ideas. And along with people like Bill Paley over at CBS, Phil Graham was invited to Alan Dulles' annual meeting of media figures at the Alibi Club, an exclusive private gentleman's club in Washington, D.C. We should note, too, that columnist Joe Alsup, who worked for the Post uh, during the 50s and in the 60s became one of the biggest supporters of the Vietnam War, was also another prominent member of influential people known as the Georgetown Set. Anyway, the point of this is that Jim Diogenio said, exaggerating only slightly, the Washington Post could easily be looked upon as a civilian intelligence center. And Ben Bradley was... uh, a member of, of this same set of clubby people in Washington, D.C. His wife, Tony, became best friends with a then-Georgetown senator's wife. Her name was Jackie Kennedy. Thus it was that Ben Bradley came to have great access to the presidency by virtue of his close relationship with JFK. Head to part two of uh, Jim's discussion on Ben Bradley, which you can find, dear listener, by the way, at consortiumnews.com. Despite the fact that the movie, The Post, makes reference to Bradley's close personal relationship with JFK, Jim Diogenio wonders why it was, of all people, Ben Bradley didn't do more to look into the murder of his good friend. After all, there still is a great deal of controversy in the assassination. Diogenio asks later, even if Ben Bradley was inclined to accept the official version that Oswald had acted alone, wouldn't a true friend of JFK want to make sure the investigation was done properly? Now, it turns out that David Talbot had a chance to ask Bradley about this in 2004. Bradley was 83 at the time and had been kicked way upstairs at the post, says Diogenio, but still had a small office. The answer Bradley gave David Talbot for not lifting a finger to inquire into his friend's assassination was this. He was worried that if he devoted resources to the case, it would harm him and the Post by allowing people to revive allegations about his overly close personal relationship with Kennedy. Said Diogenio, Talbot left it at that, but perhaps shouldn't have. In 1964, when the Warren Commission was ostensibly investigating the murder of President Kennedy, Ben Bradley was already financially comfortable, having been given a sizable stock option having been given sizable stock options in the Washington Post company that he knew would make millions of dollars. Said Diogenio, let us grant Bradley his weak argument. I would have replied, okay, Ben, that was 64, but in 1976, you were at the pinnacle of your career. You had attained the title of executive editor of the Post. Why didn't you do anything while the House Select Committee on Assassinations was reopening your friend's murder case? We should pause a moment to note that earlier in this discussion, Jim had pointed out that 
Dick Helms let Ben Bradley know in, uh, I think it was the early, very early 60s, that Newsweek might go up for sale, knowing that Bradley would pass the word on to Phil Graham, who Helms hoped would buy the magazine. And, of course, he did, and gave Ben Bradley some stock options as part of the deal. Back to 1976, said Eugenio, actually Bradley did do some things, but they weren't in support of a thorough reevaluation. Author Anthony Summers had called Bradley and given him a tip about what investigator Gaten Fonzie had discovered, which was the Cuban exile leader Antonio Vesiana had reported seeing Lee Harvey Oswald meeting with a CIA officer. That was in Dallas in late summer 63. Tony Summers recommended that Ben Bradley inquire into that matter. Bradley put a British intern, David Lee, on the case with the proviso that he try and discredit it. Lee investigated and told Bradley that he couldn't discredit it since it appeared to be true. What Summers and Lee did not know about Bradley's motivations was this. The accused CIA officer, David Atlee Phillips, had also called Ben Bradley about the Vesiana lead, and the CIA-friendly executive editor wanted to spike the story. This comes out of Jim DiEugenio's Destiny Betrayed. But one of the Post writers assigned a report on the House Select Committee on Assassination was the CIA's good friend Walter Pincus, who up until I think even now, if it were not now until very recently, was the go-to guy at the Washington Post on intelligence matters. Walter Pincus disparaged the committee as, quote, perhaps the worst example of congressional inquiry run amok. At any rate, I'm going to stop here. For more information about how Ben Bradley is can, should not always be seen as a heroic figure, I would refer you to that piece about him at consortiumnews.com by Jim Diogenio. At this point, I think I want to quote directly from Daniel Ellsberg himself from his book, Secrets. Its subtitle, by the way, is A Memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. About page 350, Ellsberg is describing how he's resolved to go public with this, but needs allies in Congress. Two people he thinks of, Pete McCloskey, Republican representative from California, and George McGovern, senator from South Dakota. It's at this moment that I do have to pause and reflect back on the fact that we have been privileged to have had both of those individuals on Radio Parallax. I think they should be both viewed as American heroes Unfortunately for Daniel Ellsberg, neither one of them decided that they were the proper person to come forward and assist his effort to get the Pentagon Papers before the American public. Ellsberg doesn't blame him. He said he knew McGovern was ramping up to run for president, which he did in 1972. And since he thought McGovern was a great candidate to stop the war in Vietnam, he didn't want to do anything that might stymie his efforts. Now, Ellsberg did approach quite a few people in Congress, including uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson, so I can't resist quoting from the book when he said that on Tuesday, March 2nd, I was back at George McGovern's office. He told me that though he knew, he said he wouldn't discuss it with anyone else, he had decided to have some legal advice, so he'd gone to his close friend Gaylord Nelson, who was a lawyer. I kept a poker face as I heard this, but I could see where this was heading. I asked, did you mention my name? I wasn't going to, said the senator. I didn't say who had given me the material, but strangely enough, when I mentioned that it was a former official, Gaylord asked, was it Daniel Ellsberg? So I said yes, said Ellsberg. So much for the vow of silence the week before. 
I'd asked if Nelson had mentioned that he had met with me, and he said no, just that Gaylord said he, McGovern, was a presidential candidate and just couldn't do a thing like this. It should be noted, too, that Danny Ellsberg and the people helping him realized they needed to have a lot of copies of this to distribute to different people, so he not only copied them the first time, down in Los Angeles, he was back east copying them all over the place. He notes that once he had copies... He put them in separate boxes and had to find places to store them. One box went to his brother in New York, others to friends, attics, or basements in the area. Almost none of them were told what were in the box, just that they were papers I needed stored. To pick up the narrative, Ellsberg says, When Neil Sheehan came to see me in Cambridge on March 12th, I was sleepless from the night spent making extra copies. I took Neil over to where I'd stored copies and showed him the study. He had taken a room at a motel off Harvard Square. He could see at once, leaving through the pages, that the papers lived up to my descriptions. To promote them the times, he said, he had to go through most of them, which would obviously take time. He asked to make a copy, but I didn't want that to happen, not yet. He goes on to discuss his talk with Sheehan, so we didn't talk about protecting me as the source. I took it for granted that it would do that up to a point. And I didn't ask for any special measures if it came to the papers facing legal pressures. I didn't want credit, either as a source or a participant in the study, but I didn't make any requests as to how the Times would handle that. Neil Sheehan's response to all this was was to reassure me that the New York Times was the best channel for this information, which he obviously thought must be delivered to the American people, and the likelihood, though not certainty, that he would convince his bosses of this. Meanwhile, he had to read through the material and take notes. I left him to do it. This evidently took a couple of days. After that, Sheehan said he was going to go to New York to talk to the editors and would be back. He brought back the news that his editors were definitely interested. And in what is sort of a funny interlude describing how things go in the big-time world of the press... Sheehan evidently kept asking Ellsberg for a full copy of all the documents and needed him to agree to that to go to his editors. Finally, Ellsberg says, okay. What he didn't know was that in the meantime, Sheehan had taken the liberty of copying all of them just in case he said yes. To quote, in agreeing to hand over a copy, even in the absence of any assurance that the Times planned to run the story, I was aware, as presumably Neil was, that I was signaling my trust in him to use the material as he saw fit. It was my consent for the Times to publish at its discretion. But in fact, as I learned later, he did not need my consent or my copy for that matter. What he chose not to tell me was the Times already rented several suites in the New York Hilton where a team was working over the Pentagon Papers on a crash basis, writing commentaries and selecting parts of the text and documents for inclusion. They had the full copy of what I had shown Neil for more than a month. Part of this story came out over the next two years, though major parts remained obscure, puzzling to me to this day. Near the end of my trial, unbelated discovery, we got the contents of Howard Hunt's White House safe. This is post-Watergate, which included a chronology by Hunt indicating that Neil and Susan Sheehan, in March, had checked in under assumed names at hotels in Cambridge and had taken thousands of pages evidently the entire study, to local copying establishments in Medford and Boston. This might be a good time to pause, take a breath, and resume this stirring narrative in our second segment. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax.